Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Now please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with our man, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller is here with us today. What's up, my boy, Rod? I'm, I'm here, man, like you say, and I'm uh, real happy to be here. Election day, you know, and it probably won't be when other people hear this, uh, <laughs> but it's election day in America, and uh, it's, I guess, uh, a little bit of a conundrum for all of us, man, about who's going to win and what's going to happen here. But uh, it's a good day to do a darn stud cast, and I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. A lot of stuff to talk about. I want to begin with this because I noticed on your website at tnstud.com, you are decked out and ready for Christmas. And if you're looking for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list, there's a ton of stuff there, including autograph photos of the stud. You got a ton of those t-shirts in black and blue autograph copies of your novel called Brutus. And you've got an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the Continental and Southeastern Wrestling Days. TNstud.com. TNstud.com is the studs home on the internet. You got to check it out. And a lot of stuff is available there. And we, we lost somebody this week, Stud. Somebody you knew very well. Tracy Smothers died yeah. last yeah. week. I mean, like right after the stud cast, we learned about this. Let's talk yeah. about Tracy for a second. Yeah, right after we recorded last week, uh, Tracy died. And, uh, you know, I really, really liked Tracy Smothers. Uh, he was a tremendous athlete, a great wrestler, uh, but maybe even a better person. I mean, Tracy was just really a soft-spoken guy and uh, very, very personable. And, and uh, you know, was sorry to lose him. He, and he had been sick for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not going to be able to do tribute on him. Uh, but I uh, sure wanted to acknowledge him, and I uh, really was really pretty darn close to Tracy. Uh, he and Steve Armstrong made one of the best tag team uh, partners that uh, and, and combination that I'd ever seen, man, uh, yep. as the Southern boys. And really, really uh, great in the ring and a great person. And, uh, and to those uh, that have lost Tracy along with me, I feel bad for all of us. And uh, he, he was a great person. And uh, and a tough guy to lose. Yeah, I don't pretend to know him, but he, he really did seem like one of the nice guys in the business. Oh, yeah. 
Definitely. Wow. And, uh, very, very, uh, wow. Uh, uh, a great old Southern boy, truly not just called, uh, you know, the Southern boys. Uh, you know, he was he was a great Southern person and he had that personality and uh, really, really going to be missed by all of us. The manners of a Southern gentleman. And that's the way to be raised. All right. And listen, you kind of posed a question on the show last week about the second gladiator. And you said, if anybody knows who that second gladiator was. All you have to do is just send in your guesses. And, and of course, you had folks that hit you up on Facebook and your Instagram account. What what happened? How did that come out? Oh, well, man. It, <laughs> wow. The, the guesses came from all over the world and they came from, uh, wow, it just, I couldn't believe, you know, <laughs> and I tried to respond to just about everybody that sent me a guess, uh, you know, and uh and it, it was about uh, two days before anybody actually got the correct answer. Hmm. And uh, obviously, Dick Steinborn was the babyface gladiator. And uh, once he was hurt, which is what happened in our last studcast, then uh, a, a heel gladiator showed up uh, the very next week. In fact, he's going to be on this card that we're going to be talking about today. And he has a little run there. And they, the fans were just really, really... Uh, Yanking the fans chains big time back in those days. You know, they were like, what in the heck is going on here, man? Right, I right. The gladiator was hurt. Now he ain't hurt. And now he ain't the gladiator. And he's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, for those that, you know, I want to I wanna acknowledge a, a gentleman named Alex Dan Gray, who was the first one to give me the correct answer. And the correct answer was Jim Dalton of the Dalton boys. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, uh, Jim was a great worker, and, uh, you know, uh, we really had a lot of fun with this in Southeastern for a couple of months there. Uh, actually, for almost three months, uh, we had ourselves uh, one gladiator that left, one that came in, and for a <laughs> while, we had two gladiators. Right. You know? So, uh, that, thank you very much, uh, for Alex, uh, for your for your guests, and, uh, and our congratulations for being correct about it, and uh, I hope everybody kind of liked that. I may have some more I have some more of these I can throw in every once in a while. And are you going to tell the story about the second gladiator kind of as we go along the way? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to start a little bit on him today, but, uh, cool. yeah, this will progress over the next couple of months. So we'll be talking about Jim Dalton as the gladiator. And, uh, and then, uh, when, uh, Steinborn comes back, uh, they're going to end up having matches. It's gladiator versus gladiator, man. So, <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, you know, it's, uh, we're going to, it's going to look like the old Roman cathedral, man. You know, the old Coliseum, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's going to be kind of nasty. We'll have the, the two gladiators, but, uh, it'll be something interesting uh, as time goes by. And I kind of really, like I said, as a booker, I really enjoyed the little angle because, uh, I could kind of play with people's minds and, and I had a little fun with it. So that's good stuff. Cool. All right. So a lot to get to today. And it's what you're famous for telling the story of professional wrestling. So where are we riding this week, Ron? Okay. Well, we got a, a great today's training one. Uh, and uh, we're wearing one of the promoters hat again, you know, and we're, we're going to learn how and why Southeastern smaller cities were keeping pace with Knoxville. And, uh, you know, uh, we're going to move into November of 1976. In this one, we're going to talk about the great card on November 5th, 1976. We're going to talk about a great TV, man, that was promoted for the same card. 
the results of that night, the attendance, and we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming and extremely important annual November television rating period that measures how many fans uh, Southeastern really has. And, uh, you know, that's a, cannot overemphasize that as a owner of a wrestling company and someone who has a product that's on television every week about what those books, when they come in, mean to you and mean to others, um, maybe even more importantly, the TV stations. So we're going to finish with the learning tree questions from a gentleman named Mike Schaefer, and he's asked, how did it feel to win the title in the Terry Funk match and have the belt taken away again after the match was over? So because it actually happened in 1975 uh, to me. So and then he asked, uh, why did you feel you were not given a true run with the title? And did I ever regret selling Continental Wrestling? So there's three questions there, but uh, I think uh, this should be interesting for fans and uh, you know, uh, thank you very much for your shape, Mr. Schaefer, for your questions. And uh, I'm ready to roll, man. Got my old lightning is saddled up, man, and he's raring to go. And we think we do, Dave. Are we starting out with today's training, Ron? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll jump right into the old today's training. Uh, so today we're going to put on the promoter's hat, like I said a minute ago, and we're going to answer a question many listeners have been asking and train our audience today at the same time. So we're going to accomplish two things at once. There, there's been so much going on in Southeastern in the fall of 1976 in the last eight, ten episodes that I haven't had the opportunity to answer one question that keeps coming in. And that question is, what was happening in the smaller cities in Southeastern in 1976? And were we filling the buildings in those small cities like we did the Coliseum in Knoxville on that Terry Funk afternoon of uh, October 10th, 1976. So in today's training, I'm going to answer that question. And at the same time, I'm going to look back at the young man I was at that time frame and what was going on in my life. And I was, to be honestly, I was a bit overwhelmed by what I'd gotten myself into with Southeastern Wrestling. And I had thoughts at times about giving up my dream of running my own territory. And just going back to being a wrestler, or worse still, uh, maybe even leaving the wrestling profession. It was so stressful for me in that first year or probably the first 18 months almost that it, it was a struggle for me. So I, in, my, in the first year of my ownership of that company, I'd gone, to, I'd gone from making about $2,000 a week as a wrestler alone living in a beautiful home in West Palm Beach, Florida, a nice little swimming pool and driving a nice car. And uh, I went <laughs> from there to renting a small house that I could barely pay the rent on. And I was having to borrow money each week to pay my losses in my company and to be able to continue to be an owner of a wrestling company. Uh, so on top of that, my financial situation, as it is with so many people, it's sad to say in life, uh, it had dramatically affected my relationship with my family and my future. So I was operating this new company the same way the prior owner had been doing it. He had been running only two shows a week, Knoxville on Friday and a small city somewhere near Knoxville on Saturdays. And I realized after several months that this just wasn't going to be enough income for me to survive and pay my weekly payments to John Kazana which was $500 a week, which is a pretty substantial amount of money back in those days. And that's what I had to pay to, to maintain the ownership of Southeastern Wrestling. 
And if I didn't make those payments, you know, my dream was done. You know, and my deal with him was if I couldn't make the payments, he gets the town back and and I get to find me someplace else to go and something else to do. You know, so so I had to find the answer to this question, you know, about how what do I what do I need to do to change things from what he was doing? And it was pretty simple answer, actually. If I didn't run at least six nights a week, it was obvious I wasn't going to be able to keep wrestlers living in my territory and working with me. And without wrestlers, you don't have a territory. You you just have a town, you know, and uh, a lot of guys were happy with that. You know, some guys, guys owned pieces of Chattanooga and, uh, and John Kazan had owned the town of Knoxville for years and he ran one or two other little towns around it. But you didn't have a territory. And my dream was to have my own company and to have my own wrestlers and be able to do things that, the way I wanted to, not have to pay a booking fee like John Kazana was doing for the Nashville office in Tennessee with Roy, my grandfather, and Nick Goulas. So I wanted, I realized that I can't do it like he's doing it and, and, and turn it into a territory. So in April of 1975, about six months after my arrival in Knoxville and the birth of Southeastern Wrestling, when I started, I put on my promoter's hat when this really struck me that you got to change things, Ron. And I started developing ideas that would end up saving my company. And it began with a plan to add additional cities to operate. Matches it. Obviously, I needed more towns than just two or three towns other than Knoxville. And that would be by adding these new towns. I could bring the number of events per week pretty easily up to six a week. That's what most territories did. A lot, a lot of territories did seven a week, and some were big enough that they could do two towns a night. But if you could run six nights a week, you could basically have yourself a territory, and you could keep your wrestlers to where they could make enough money, and you could have your own business. And that was my dream to begin with. So I handpicked those cities around me, that he had not run. John Kazana had not run. Then I had to come up with other ideas to make it work once I picked out those cities. So the first part of uh, the big equation for me was the buildings in these new cities. So, you know, where was I going to run in these cities? And that was critical to in the wrestling profession. The yeah, building was too small. Uh, nobody knew where it was. It was in a dangerous location. Uh, you know, there were so many little things that would make the building not work for you and uh, keep you from being successful. So the building had to be large enough to hold a crowd that uh, would make the wrestlers a good payoff. And it also make profit for the company. And almost every city in America that I finally realized, bam, is like, wow, is, is had high school. And all of those high schools had a gymnasium, you know, and those gyms were almost always the largest building in most of those small cities, and everybody knew where the high school was, mm-hmm. so they know where your building is. Once you announce you're going to be wrestling in a high school, they know where the heck they go. So that was just like a no-brainer, and I wondered why nobody had ever done that before, but it hadn't been happening there. I'd done it in Florida when I was working with Eddie and uh, running West Palm. I ran my first high school, Vero Beach, and uh, it turned out to be one of the biggest spot shows they ever ran in Florida. It drew $10,000 back in 1972, and uh, Eddie was like, wow, boy, what did you do? And I I said, I ran in a high school gym. And he goes, how did you get in there? 
So, you know, I, I kind of was familiar that I knew that this could work, but I had to get off my butt and go to work and get these towns and get into these schools. Mm. So, you know, every good promoter, he not only figures out, uh, you know, how to make his company more profitable, but, you know, as a really good promoter, you could take the next step and, and you got to figure out in the case of dealing with high schools, how to make them profitable, how to make it make sense for them. They're not going to put you in there just for the heck of it. No. Yeah. Let's let you take your wrestlers in there and do your wrestling here, you know, but, uh, uh what do we make? So then there were two more other important thoughts about this time that struck me. And the first was that every school could use some additional revenue to help them with their expenses, obviously. And if the school didn't need it, the athletic department always did in those schools. You know, football teams and basketball teams, and they're looking for uniforms, and they, they've got to have a little extra money to survive. So if I, I finally figured out if I could provide the income in exchange for the use of their gyms, high schools across the southeast would open their doors for me. Mm-hmm. And by golly, Dave, they did. (laughs) Then once I started and I was successful, I had several of these high schools that would speak up for me. If I was dealing with the football team, they would say, they would call other schools and go, wow, you need any money, man? This Southeastern wrestling is a heck of a deal to get involved with. So I had others helping me sell this program. The second thought was obviously that these high schools would also provide me with a built-in audience of students, high school age and younger, plus their parents that would be eager, obviously, to support the school-sanctioned event, especially something that actually helped their school. So by doing that, I got these entire families to attend the matches, and uh, they became fans, (laughs) all the way from daddy and granddad all the way down to the babies. And once they became fans, they loved it for life. Everybody wins. Yeah, everybody wins. And certainly Southeastern won because, gosh, like I said, I made friends and I made fans out of entire families, you know, that just they really, really got into it. Uh, And that we're going to talk a little bit about the television ratings. Wow, that has a tremendous amount to do with growing your television ratings as well. So I knew I had a great idea, but now lots of new cities uh, use that idea. But I needed TV coverage far beyond what my television station, when I bought uh, from John Kazan in Knoxville, uh, could reach. And that's, uh, you know, Southeastern wasn't going to make it and, and in the, on the TV station where I was. That was for sure. And the one that they were on when I bought that company. So in May of 1975, I was really lucky. I was a young guy. I went in. I talked to WBIR-TV, the strongest television station in the market. I was lucky. Somehow I made a great presentation, and uh, I was accepted as a new customer for them. And this TV station had a huge signal. It went 100 miles further than the existing station I was on when I get went there. So wow. it actually went out almost 150 miles into wow. the mountains. of uh, it, it got me into cities that had never seen wrestling on television. So, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a tremendous deal for me. And that additional TV coverage, it instantly added for me 30 new cities to my plans for the future. So as a promoter, I'm well on my way. 
I then had a plan and the, and the TV necessary to implement my plan. But again, the promoter realized me there was another extremely important element to this. It was going to be critical how often I ran the same city and what type of matches I had there when I did run them. Uh, and these smaller cities are what promoters call sport, spot shows. Uh, people hear that phrase a lot in wrestling. Uh, that was usually a smaller city that did not get run on a regular basis. So I'm going to be running at least four spot shows per week. That's quite a few spot shows that you have to go to. So they needed special attention, these spot shows. They're going to remain healthy spot shows, and they're going to continue to grow and to draw more fans. You, you had to increase the size of the crowds to make this successful. So many promoters across the country, they were never able to figure out how to run spot shows, how often they should be running them, and how to control the matches that, uh, that we're having in those spot shows at night. And uh, business went down for them. Most of them long rather than go up. So mm. I couldn't afford to have that happen to me. Now I've got the schools, I've got the cities, I've got the facilities and the places to go to have my events. I got to make them successful and I got to make sure they don't just uh, stay successful, that they grow into monster dime events every time we go there. So most territories had several major cities. I bought one city, Knoxville, basically. I wanted to make a territory out of it. But most territories encompass states rather than cities. Mm. You had plenty of cities. Some territories had three or four spot shows a month if they had that. They didn't need to because they had all these major cities within their territory. So if they made mistakes by running their spot shows and they killed them, uh, they could just find another one every, you know, like, hey, we won't go back there anymore. Mm. We're not drawing there anymore. They didn't have to rely on them, the spot shows for income like I did. I was in a position where I need these towns to do well. So I had to get it right the first time with these spot shows. My territory was a small one, like I said, compared to most. It basically only had two weekly markets. I had Knoxville on Friday, and I had the Tri-Cities of Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol on Tuesday. The other four events every week in Southeastern was going to be in a small city somewhere within 150 miles of Knoxville. Uh, I couldn't afford to make mistakes in those cities because that's like burning my bridges there, man. And, uh, and I still had to have them to survive. So I know that this may seem like a long ride and a big circle here so far in today's training. But as a promoter, all these things were critical. Uh, this needed to be explained. I thought today this way before I answer the question that I've been receiving so much. Then that question was, what was happening in the smaller cities of Southeastern? And was their buildings filling up as Knoxville's had been in the fall of 1976? And the quick answer was absolutely yes, thankfully. We'd done a great job with the development of these smaller cities in Southeastern. Just as we've done with the major markets, the Knoxville and Tri-Cities, uh, none of the smaller cities had never been run, started with buildings and gymnasiums. They started, they weren't full. It was just like Knoxville the first time I ran a match there. I had a thousand people in Chihuahua Park. It was like, wow, this is horrible. What the heck, what am I going to do? Even worse than that in the Tri-Cities up there. But business continued to slowly grow. 
So, and the same thing happened, thank goodness, in these spot shows. Business continued to grow. We started out with small crowds, and uh, neither of Knoxville or the Tri-Cities, when he started, had any business, neither of the small towns. But they all grew in attendance, just like Knoxville and Tri-Cities did. Mm -hmm. So, we only went to most of the smaller cities maybe four times a year. Between May and 1975, when I changed TV stations uh, up to uh, November of 1976, Smaller city buildings were now full every time we went there. And I wished most of the time that the gyms had been twice as big. You wow. know, we were just selling out these big old gyms. And, and sometimes we'd sell them out 30 minutes before match time. How many? I needed how many? to look outside and see the people getting in their cars to go home. Wow. They couldn't get a ticket. You know, how many folks could you put in one of those gymnasiums on average? They were large, you know, great. That's a very good, I'll give you a great example right off the bat. One of these spot show towns, and this wasn't a high school. This wouldn't had, didn't happen to be a high school. But mm -hmm. It was in a Kentucky. Uh, and uh, we ran it once a month. It became such a good town. We started going there monthly, uh, once a month. And it had a large building. It was a city-owned building, and it held a lot of people. It was pretty big. It held about 4,000 fans. Wow. It was pretty close to the size of Chihuahua Park's indoor building. It had steadily grown since we started there. And uh, the first night we went there, the attendance was about 1,000 people. But 14 months later, we were there. Uh, we had a crowd of 3,000. Wow. And that night we had 3,000. I said, man, we're going to sell this building out the next time because I had Andre the Giant coming Holy in God. January, early yeah. January of 77. Yeah. And I wasn't going to get him like I had been just for Knoxville. I had a deal work with Vince Sr. And I was going to get him for a week because Andre loved Southeastern. He loved my territory. He had such a great time there that he says, Ron, I want to be here a lot, you know. <laughs> And I said, yeah, and every time I looked at the crowds, I said, uh, you know, uh, Andre, I want you here a lot. <laughs> so Andre liked going to these small towns and just seeing all the folks. Andre liked coming to Knoxville because Andre's life was really difficult. He was on the road all the time, and he went to these big cities, and he wasn't uh, treated by a lot of promoters the way he should have been. I really loved Andre. And he grew to love me as well. And I treated Andre really well. And not only I did, but my referee, Mac McMurray, uh, him and Andre became closest of friends. And so did the guys in the territory. And when he came in, he had the Canadian, uh, you know, Andre had spent a lot of time in Montreal. He had the Joe LaDukes there and he had the Ronnie Garvins there. He had these yeah. in Montreal, these Canadian, French Canadians that, and they could talk to him in his own right, language. Right. And yeah. So he loved coming to Knoxville. So when he comes to Knoxville and I take him up to Hazard, Kentucky, on January 3rd, 1977, that 4,000-seat building ain't big enough. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like, wow, man. It, we turned away probably 2,000 people that just couldn't even get inside the building. What was the population of Hazard, Kentucky? Hazard, Kentucky's population was probably uh, less than 6,000. Right. You know, so we put 4,000 in this building. 
So, you know, ticket sales of 30 minutes before match time, it was, you know, people were getting in those cars and going yeah. home, you know. And yeah. I was like, wow, I wish we had 8,000 seats here, you know. But uh, obviously they're not going to build a building like that because they had never seen crowds like that in that city. <laughs> they were like, wow, this is unbelievable. Uh, I'll give you another example. Hey, this one this one will shock you. Harlan, Kentucky. We started going to Harlan, Kentucky, and it had a 3,000-seat gymnasium. It was one of the biggest gyms in the state of Kentucky. Thank goodness. A round gym, beautiful facility. And so, we, you know, because we had that real strong signal, uh, you know, and it started in May of 75, mm -hmm. uh, we started going in there uh, just about a month after we got on the WBIR, and our crowds was about 700, 800 people, you know, but... uh. You know, most of the seats were empty, and it's like, gosh, are we ever going to be able to build this town? So it caught on, you know, and uh, had a population of 3,000 people. When you drove into Harlan, Kentucky, there was a sign on the side of the road, Harlan, welcome to Harlan, 3,000 people. So, you know, we started out with about six or 700 fans. About a year later, we were up to about 2,000 every time we went there. And then it reached a point where I decided we need to go here more often than the other spot shows. We need to come every other week, make it a Saturday night, every other Saturday night, come to Harlan. By November of 1976, we were filling that gym with at least 3,000, you know, sometimes probably more than 3,000 in there. And so actually, when you drove into town and the sign says the population 3,000 and you get to the gym and you got 3,000, you could honestly say we drew the city, right? Right, no doubt. We drew yeah. everybody in town tonight. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, and Andre's going to go there the same week that he goes to Hazard. And, uh, you know, gosh, I wish we, and it happened to be winter. Uh, you know, if we'd have been outside, we might have drawn 8,000, 10,000 people with Andre the Giant in Harlan, <laughs> Kentucky. <laughs> so what had happened in Southeastern was unique. You know, as a major market, you know, the city of Knoxville, it grew its audience, and all the surrounding cities up to 150 miles around uh, grew just along with the, uh, Knoxville's growth and with actually the growth in the Tri-Cities up there. That building was way too small, too. So what had happened over the period of time from May of 75 until November of 76, wrestling had become the second most popular sports event in that part of the country. It was only surpassed by the University of Tennessee football, which had a 100,000-seat stadium. Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, wow. when people talk sports in East Tennessee and in the southeastern area, they talk wrestling or football. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of what went down here. And for all you people that's been asking me, why don't I talk about the small cities anymore? <laughs> uh, well, there's your update on it. And, uh, and it made it pretty good today's training because it's a great promotional concept for anybody. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. This is good. Uh, you know, I was able to take the promoter's hat and put it on and be able to answer the question. A lot of fans has been talking about the same thing. Interesting. I, I want to go back just for a second because you said you, you dealt with some high schools and you had wrestling in high school gyms way back when, do you remember actually going to those schools and asking for the coach or driving up and talking to the principal first and saying, Hey, I've got an idea. And how did that go in the beginning? Was this, yeah. and were you the first person to do that at these schools? Oh yeah. 
yeah, nobody had ever done that. It had never happened before. And uh, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. And and it was really funny when I first started Southeastern, I'm a heel. And, uh, you know, when I go into some of these schools, they would <laughs> they yeah. were like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anybody that I felt uh, confident enough to send in there to explain this program and to get it done. And I oh. couldn't afford not to get it done. So I went myself, and that's exactly what I did. I went in the front door of those schools, and I said, where's the principal's office? And I went and sat down <laughs> with the principal. And if the principal didn't like the concept, he's like, well, he's a little wishy-washy. I said, how about your football coach? Does he need some money? And, uh, you know, <laughs> so, so I, I didn't leave without a, an answer, uh, without right. a yes. And, and what happened is it became such a successful program there were schools there, Dave, that over four years' time, Harlan, Kentucky's high school made a half a million dollars. Wow. You bought a, a lot of jerseys and uniforms for a lot of kids. I bought a stadium probably, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, they put lights on their football field. I mean, they did whatever yeah. they wanted to, you know. Yeah. And that coach would speak up for me. I would just call him and say, look, I need you to talk to the coach in Barberville, Kentucky. And he'd go, absolutely, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I know him. He goes, yeah. I'll get yeah. this for you. You want to go there, Ron? I said, yeah, I do. Well, I'll take care of it. You know, well, so it got to be easy. Yeah. And plus when you walked in, they knew your face and they looked up and saw you at six feet nine. And they, a, a lot of these folks, I'm guessing also recognized you from TV. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, they, yeah, you could tell when I went to, you know, when I, I opened the door and I walked in the door, you know, they mm -hmm. were like, Oh yeah, I know you, I know you. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> and you know, the good thing about it, Dave, I was lucky. I had the college background and, and I was fairly sharp dude. And I made not just an impression with my size. I made an impression with my idea and my concept and they all needed money badly. So it worked perfectly. And everybody copied it. After they found out <laughs> other territories said, well, why don't we go to the high schools like they do in Southeastern? Oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's called not leaving the money on the table and, and finding those places when you were looking for the place. That's man, that is remarkable, Ryan. That's awesome. The, the, and the interest had grown that much in just two short years since you had started Southeastern. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I, and I, I guess that's correct. You know, I'm talking about from May of 75 until mm -hmm. uh, November of 76, it's actually less than two years, you know? So I hadn't realized it was that short period of time, but I look back on that time now. And, and I remember how I had these doubts that I was ever going to be able to make Southeastern happen. And just how fast it did once it got started was amazing. You know, I, I almost walked away and then, you know, boom, once it started, it just caught hold and, and it went crazy. I'm so glad I hung in there, you know, and it's a great lesson for those out there that are struggling out there today. Yes, somebody that's an entrepreneur and somebody that wants to start their own company, they want to start their own business. They have these goals that I had as a young guy. And these dreams about what they can do. And my advice to you people out there that are doing that is never give up, man. No matter how desperate things look, because you never know when you may be right on the edge of success and you walk away.
you know, uh, if I had to give somebody some advice, I would I would tell them just that. Don't ever say no that you can't do it because you don't know how close you are to doing it. That's awesome. And during this time period, and maybe you've told us before, you were probably 27, 28 years old. Yeah, I went to Knoxville. I was 26 years old, 26 years old. And I, at 26, 27 years old, I am out there on the roads every day going to different high schools, getting this program kicked off. And it turned out to be hugely successful, not just for me, but for all those high schools that got involved. They all made tremendous money from it because I gave them not just the program and the 20% of the gross house. Mm -hmm. I gave them the concessions and I gave them other ways to make money. And uh, it caught on. And it made me hugely successful. They could, not wait. Successful. they could not wait for you to come back. I know that. All right. That's an awesome job on today's training and advice for entrepreneurs, Ron. Really cool stuff. All right. So where are we headed to now? Well, let's jump on that card in Knoxville of November 5th, 1976. The opening match that night was a young baby face. People across the country and around the world recognize the name now, Tommy Rich, a wirefire himself. And uh, he was wrestling against the gladiator. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the same gladiator that the week before people had seen carried out to the hospital. And uh, those two listened to me last week. uh, You know, they're going to find out today. You know, we'll talk about it a little bit more about the brand new persona of this new gladiator. In the second match on that night, we got Rip Smith versus the great Mephisto. Rip Smith's a tremendous young wrestler has a great future, and uh, he's working against a pretty darn good dude in Frankie Kane, uh, a really, really major, major talent. Third match was Jimmy Golden against Louis Toulette, and that all stemmed from a wild six-man tag the Friday night before when the gladiator Steinborn got hurt and was injured, actually in the big melee, and this uh, Steinborn wasn't even in that match. And went down there and got involved and ended up getting taken to the hospital. And uh, Golden and Tillette had a big brawl during this same deal. And this match was a special challenge match between Golden and Tillette. Fourth match was a Southeastern Tag Championship match with a new team, Tora Tanaka and Mike Stallings. Now, it had been Mike Stallings and Jimmy Golden wrestling against the Southeastern Tag Champions, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger, uh, many, many times. But uh, now Jimmy's he's mad at Louis Tillette, so he's going after Tillette, and Tor Tanaka steps in as partners with Mike Stallings. That's a pretty good upgrade for Mike Stallings, as a matter of fact. You know, that's that's not a bad deal for him. So the main event was a return match uh, with Ron Wright against Ronnie Garvin, and Ronnie Garvin's now managed by the big bad John himself, uh, a pretty dangerous dude. And the Friday before, Ron Wright had to watch from the floor as he kept getting knocked off of the ring and back down on the floor. He had to watch his brother, Don Wright, be hung by Big Bad John and then uh, knee drop from the top rope by Garvin. And so so this match uh, for this night is a lights-out match. I brought this idea concept from Florida. Uh, They had lights-out matches there after you had these long programs. That needed to be settled. It was like a cage. Sometimes the lights out match was even more violent than the cage. Mm. And, uh, you know, so 
This was a lights-out match, which meant the match was non-sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. They didn't want anything to do with it. And in order to prove that, they turned out the lights in the building after the, all the other matches. And the, they, when the wrestlers went to the ring for the lights-out match, they extinguished the lights in the building. And they left them off for about five seconds, and they turned them back on, which meant that the NWA's got no—they don't sanction this. That <laughs> you you want to stay, you can. If you want to go home, you can. You right. know, as far as they're concerned, your matches are over that night. Mm-hmm. So you know, it has no DQ, it has a no time limit. And then this match, Ron Wright was going to have a special manager. All right, this sounds like a really cool lineup. My guess is we're also going to talk about the TV six days before this big night. Yeah, that's it. Here you're on it, my man. And in this TV is going to be a, another good one, Dave. We were just one week away from the beginning of the next TV rating period that began in early November and it ended at the end of the month. So, WBIR's TV sales manager, he was a guy named Lynn Lepper. I really loved him. He was a super guy and he had so much appreciation for wrestling and and the numbers that we were drawing that he always made sure that I knew when these rating periods were coming that we did something special in those months in which there was a rating month so I'm going to start doing something special on the week before the rating month on this particular TV because Lynn says Ron it's time to crank her up man and uh, I got the idea so I said okay Lynn here we go so the TV of October 30th, 1976, it's going to open up with that usual tight shot that we've been doing for a long time now. Uh, Les Satcher uh, is by himself in that opening shot, and he runs down the lineup for the today's show, and then the cameras kind of back out and widen the shot, and uh, they're sitting with Les, kind of like the same thing that happened the week before. It was Big Bad John sitting next to Les. And Ronnie Garvin standing behind the two of them with his southeastern belt over his shoulder. Hmm. And on the big set behind the three of them is Big Bad John. He's got his hands around the face and throw to Don Wright. And poor old Don Wright is just hanging there on the back of Big John's. Oh, wow. And in Big John's hangman's hold. <laughs> a still shot of it. You know, and as soon as Big Bad John saw the still shot on the full screen, because it came up on the monitor in front of him. He didn't turn around to see it. He saw the monitor showing the big screen behind him. <laughs> and uh, he started laughing with that big old, low, gravelly, <laughs> gravelly noise that came out of his body. Garvin joined right in. He started laughing, too. So Les got mad. You know, Les, this is Les's show. You, know? <laughs> you don't start out like this. Les didn't like the way they started out, and he jumped on him right away. He cuts him off. He goes, uh, what's so funny? What's so funny about that? <laughs> <laughs> so John don't care, man. You know, John, John don't care about Les. You know, so he looks up at Garvin, and, and then they both broke out into another belly laugh, man. So, well, Les got even madder now. He, and he said, saying, what's so funny? What's so funny here about that shot? What, what you're doing? Look what you're doing to Don Wright. John answered him in this, you know, real demon type of voice, man. I mean, he dug down deep for it, you know, and he goes, uh, <laughs> he goes, do you know what that is on my back? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, so, uh, Les didn't give, you know, he didn't give less time, time to answer his question. To him. He says, 
that's an arrogant hillbilly hanging there. (laughs) (laughs) He said, he wasn't even supposed to even be in the building. And look where he ended up. (laughs) Garvin broke out behind him, though they had another big (laughs) one. And also in the still shot was Ron Wright. Uh, and it and it showed him he was out on the floor, and he sees his brother hanging there on Big John's back. And he, you know, he's got the hangman hold on him, and Ron's just uh, fighting to get in the ring. And Ronnie Garvin in the same shot, you can see him. He's kicking Ron right right in the face <laughs> on the floor again. So John continues in his little tirade. He said, "I, I warned that little hillbilly, you know, the one hanging from my back there. He says <laughs> that he should go home." You know, when he showed up, you know, <laughs> and he goes, uh, that he was going to get hurt, you know, and, and, and why don't you roll the video? He says to Les, you know, and he's not really talking to Les. He's almost talking to the director. Like now I'm in control. He goes, well, why don't you roll the video? And he said, he said, let me see this little idiot hillbilly. Uh, let these hillbillies out here in this, in this audience. Take a look at what I'm going to do to this boy. <laughs> and then he points at the crowd out there, the studio audience. And, well, they obviously responded. And they, there's a big course of booze. So uh, Les calls for the director to play the video. And it showed John, Big Bad John, dumped Don Wright to the mat like he was a dead man, which he practically was at that point. <laughs> And then, he, and then it shows him takes Garvin's place. Garvin comes over and grabs uh, Don Wright and slams him and goes up, man, to do his normal deal. He's going to murder him. So John just goes over and continues to kick Ron Wright in the face off into the floor. So it ain't over for poor Don. So Ron, he goes over, you know, and uh, Garvin picks up Don and he slams him. And then he gets uh, right in the middle of the ring and then he goes up to the top rope. And then uh, John screams, man, uh, you know, as the video is going out of nowhere, he screams, stop. <laughs> and uh, I guess he meant the video, video to stop, you know, and uh, his mm-hmm. voice was so loud and so demanding. Bill Kincaid, the director of the program, he stopped the video. Les didn't tell him to stop. John says, stop, stop the video. <laughs> so now he's really got the control of the show. You know, John's really, he's telling the director to stop the video. Why did, why did he want to stop it? What was up? Okay. So Les asked John that same question. He goes, why? why, John, why, you know? And uh, he says, uh, John says to him, he says, I've heard, you know, that the TV station here can do instant replays, you know? And he goes, <laughs> he goes, you know, and he says, and, 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 and they can do slow motion instant oh my replay, God. right? And he goes, and he goes, so... So I want my my demon behind me. And he just uh, throwed his thumb up there and then kind of pointed it at Ronnie Garvin. He says, I want to show my demon behind me. And I, I want us to get the full effect of what's about to happen here. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> so, so Les finally goes, okay, well, go ahead. You know, let's see it. So it shows Ronnie Garvin. He's standing on the top rope. And, and boy, in slow motion, it just accentuates everything. Uh, Ronnie Garvin jumps off there. He soars, man, into the air in slow motion. And here he comes down, man. <laughs> and he lands slowly, man, and dramatically with his right knee under the chin of old helpless Don Wright, who's laying there out. And John begins to laugh in a low historical roar. <laughs> He's like really getting mm-hmm. it. Now. And mm-hmm. Garvin's laughing too. So Les can't take any more. <laughs> He's a, 
he asked the director, he says, stop, stop the, stop the video. Right? So, so John demanded, you know, so, so they stopped the video and they stopped the video. And then John looks over at Les and he goes, uh, no, no, not yet. He goes, not until I prepare the body for hell. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the director and then John becomes a director again and he says, run that, run that video again. And so then the video goes back to full speed. And then Garvin goes over to Ron Wright and he's kicking him off, you know, and that's at the point where, you know, at this point, he's already pending. He's already won the match. And now he's still keeping Ron Ron Wright out there on the floor. And Big John goes over and he takes Don Wright's legs real slowly and he places them together. He's laying on his back. He crosses his arms over his chest. <laughs> and, and then him and Garvin leave the ring. And uh, wow. finally a bloody Ron Wright gets, to, gets able to come into the ring. So Les is upset. This has not been a good segment. You know, Les, you know, and John pretty much taking up the entire segment in the way that he wanted to, and Les never liked people to, to do, had do it the way they wanted. He wanted them to do it his way. So John starts to get up and leave the set, and Les tried to stop him. And uh, he says something like, you know, I, I, I'm not, he, Les says to him, he says, I'm not through talking yet. You know? John suddenly, he just stops, and he turns back toward Les, and he bent down in Les's face, and he said, uh, Real slow, and it was right close to the microphone. It came out so good. He goes, uh, oh, yes. He goes, we're absolutely through here. <laughs> Unless you want us to prepare you for hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Les was stunned. He just, he just went back in his chair. He's like, oh, my God, are you serious? And, uh, you know, he wasn't ready for that response. So John just walked off with Garvin, and they head off to the ring. So Les signals to Phil Rainey to ring the bell for the first match. You know, let's get started with the first match. And uh, there was total silence in the studio. The people were kind of like Les. They were like, God, this guy's unreal, <laughs> you know. Yeah. What the heck's he all about? So Big Bad John and uh, Ronnie Garvin were in control, man. <laughs> and then they were beginning to take over Southeastern at this point. Oh, Les wow. didn't realize it, but they were going to become the show. Wow. So Garvin got in the ring, first match, right? And he, this is how it all had started with the big little encounter at the set. And boy, Garvin just, I mean, it didn't take him long to just oh, it's horrible what he was doing to these these job boys during this time frame. And uh, and again, man, he just punched and pounded this kid and then set him up in the middle of the ring and he climbed up on that top rope and he sailed to the top of the building again and he dropped that big knee in his throat and uh, John stepped over the top rope about the time the referee was raising Garvin's hand as he'd done before and he grabbed the job boy up and threw him over <laughs> Hung him on his back, man. Here we go. <laughs> the old hangman hold, and then he dropped him like a bad habit again. Then he was going to, you know, he was going to prepare him for hell, I guess is what right. he called yeah. it. And he, and he placed the, the job boy's legs together, and he had him laying on his back. And a couple of the job boy's friends, there were two more job boys on TV that day, and they'd come from Chattanooga or someplace. And I think they got upset. You know, they're like, God, man, uh, who, what, the, what are they doing here? <laughs> they just killed my buddy. <laughs> wow. 
So the two job boys hit the ring. They were going to do something, I guess. They thought to Garvin and Big John. Mm-hmm. And uh, Garvin just, he intercepted them coming through the ropes, man. And ah, he pounded them. And John never, dis- he never got upset. He never speeded up. He just slowly prepared the body. He put his legs together. <laughs> he put his arms over. And Garvin's beating the hell out of the two boys. And, uh, and, and he's back there preparing him for, for hell, right? And he's, he gets him all set up. And then uh, Garvin just tosses the two marks, the two jobbers over the top rope. And the Southeastern duo, man, <laughs> the dangerous duo, boy, they left the ring. It was wow. over. <laughs> so, so last week's introduction, Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John, I thought was really something special on that TV show. And wow, this one was way more impressive. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, these guys are getting over, man. So it was good. So Ron Wright comes in. It's interview time. Les don't want to talk anymore to Big Bad John. You know, he ain't had a very good good relationship going with John. So Ron Wright takes that first interview slot. And he talked about his upcoming Lights Out match with Garvin. Uh, You know, and he kind of told Les, you know, he... He refused to tell. Les says, who's your special manager? And he refused to say. He says, hey, they're going to find out. You know, and uh, he says, but I, something about I guarantee everybody they're going to be happy with who it is. You know, and then he left to sit, and then he was going to be wrestling live in the last match of the day. Mm. Second match was the Southeastern Tag Champions, the Von Steigers. They're wrestling against Don Carnoodle and Rip Smith. Two great young boys, man. Uh, Don Canuto is going to become a huge star in Mid-Atlantic. Rip Smith is going to be a star, period. You know, and it was a fantastic match, man, between these two young guys, soon to be superstars. It ended up in a rare for rare TV deal, a 15-minute time limit draw. Neither team got a win. Time limit ran out. The fans were the real winners because every fan in that studio was on their feet the last five minutes of that match. Wow, it was such a great match. Mm. And, uh, you know, when something's that good for the fans in the studio, I knew that the people at home were into it just the same way, man. They're going nuts, too. So when Mm. the bell sounded, the Von Steigers, man, they they quickly left the ring. They staggered out of the ring, basically. They were blown up, and they they had had a real tussle with these two young boys. And uh, the two youngsters, man, uh, instead of uh, running back to the dressing room, they ran straight to the set. They were all fired up, and so was the crowd. They were patting each other on the back, and they, they were asking Les. They said, you know, can we get another match with them next week? We want a return match. We need five more minutes. <laughs> you know, that Les is like, oh, boys, well, yeah, I'll see. I'll, oh, come on, Les. You're the guy. Can you get it done, you know? So the Von Steigers then come out for the interview. After they these boys leave, they come out for the interview. They bring their southeastern belts to the desk, and uh and they're facing Tanaka and Mike Stallings in the title match the next Friday night. Tanaka and Stallings are in the second studio, in Studio B, I used to call it. And uh, Stallings, he did the talking for his team. Obviously, uh, Tanaka did his talking in the ring. So, mm-hmm. you know, but Stallings, you know, talked about, uh, you know, how tough Tanaka was and what a great partner he had this time. And uh, the Von Steigers bragged about how they'd only lost one championship match since they came to Southeastern which was the truth. They were just practically unbeatable, that team. And uh, then before they left the set with Les, they said that not only would they accept the challenge that the two punks just made a second ago for a rematch, they said that 
We'll take it up a big ante. We'll put our belts on the line. So, wow, I got my my big match. I got my, as the as my sales manager would say, wow, Ron, you've already got next week's show going to be a good. <laughs> so, you know, I got this match coming back next week with those two guys against the young guys. Studio crowd popped immediately. Uh, Smith and Carnoodle. They came running out of the dressing room and ran into the studio crowd. They were high-fiving the studio crowd. There was a big celebration that, that they, they'd go to get their match next week on TV. So, obviously, I was already promoting the November's ratings month. <laughs> so No doubt. You didn't miss much, did you, Ron? It sounds like you were just slamming it for November, knowing that the ratings book was going to be coming out in December. Yeah. Yeah, rating books comes in December, but the matches – had to be good in November. So that was the whole deal. You didn't get right. the book until December, but you had four Saturdays in November to really rock your TV. And when you did, you were going to really rock that rating book when it came. Well, so, no doubt. That with all your years of radio, Dave, you know, I mean, you're, you know, you're aware of what them rating books are all about. Man. Well, and, and it means commercial sales. And I bet they were selling a lot of commercials on your back. Well, you know, when I went there, I, I think I've told this story before, but when I went there to that station, they were selling. The other television station that I left was selling uh, spots on the wrestling show for $25. And so when I started, we, we weren't doing too well. In this year, when we get into 1978, this TV station is going to be selling those same spots for 300 each. Holy cow. On a Saturday at, at lunchtime, basically. Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Wow. They're wow. going to get $300 a spot. And they have they have a waiting list of clients that want to get in if somebody drops out. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that, that sales manager was in love with me. He was like, Ron, you have just blown us to smithereens here with what you've accomplished <laughs> with wrestling. It was the biggest, that wrestling was the biggest show on television, uh, the biggest ratings on television from sign on to prime time on that's, Saturdays. Wow. Nobody. Right, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty huge right there, no doubt. All right, so what happened next on the TV show? Well, the show jumped up a notch after this, man. They'd had that fiery tag. And the personality profile, it just kept everybody going. It was Jimmy Golden, and he was watching the video of that six-man tag I talked about earlier here, in which it almost turned into a riot. It was a wild, wild match, a six-man elimination tag. And Jimmy focused on the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, who had become, as he called it, a father figure to all these young southeastern baby faces: Mike Stallings, Don Canoodle, Rip Smith, himself he included he talked about how much they all admired dick steinborn and how horrible it was what uh, so many of the wrestlers from the other dressing room had intentionally hurt him the night before jimmy was mad upset about it you know D dick steinborn didn't deserve that i mean you know he was just coming in there to help out he talked about the part of the video where Stein the gladiator was the first guy in this six-man tag uh, Jimmy had been eliminated. Mike Stallings had been eliminated. Tanaka was in the ring with the two Von Steigers and uh, Louis Tillet by himself. And then by the time this match ends up, uh, he beats a couple of them. Uh, Tillet goes to the dressing room. He loses. 
one of the Von Steigers goes to the dressing room. He loses. And then all of a sudden, not only does the Von Steiger come back to the ring and Louie come back to the ring, two other wrestlers come back to the ring. Now it's five on one against wow. Tanaka. And the gladiator is the first guy to go down to help out Tanaka. And uh, when he gets to the ring, the two Von Steigers and Mephisto, they drag the gladiator over away from Tanaka. You got two other guys in there beating the heck out of Tanaka still. Mm-hmm. And they take uh, Steinborn off to the side. Mephisto puts his head in between his legs and he's going to pile drive him. And once he gets him in the air, the two Von Steigers grab Steinborn's legs and they power him. Man, they power pile drive him. I call well, it. They just yeah. they hammered his head. Looked like his head went through the mat. You know, so Jimmy sees that and he's describing it in the video and he called it. He says, they tried to kill Dick Steinborn, (laughs) which it really looked like they did try to kill Dick Steinborn. So then he focused on the part of the match where him and Stallings are getting to the ring about that time. And uh, him and Louis Tillette get into a brawl of their own. Uh, And they're going to be wrestling each other next Friday night. So he closed out the video watching uh, him and Les both watching the ambulance take Dick Steinborn to the hospital. Now, fans in the studio were extremely into this entire profile. They cheered and they booed each part of this video as if it was a live match they were watching. When it was done, Jimmy got a big hand from the studio audience, and he went straight to the ring. Uh, Right there, he was already dressed. He went straight to the ring for the third match. It was like a seamless transition, man. He had that audience. He had that crowd. He had seen that great video, and he's all fired up. And he, the audience was so supportive, they actually got Jimmy fired up. I mean, he was like, wow, I, I, he went in there like Ronnie Garvin did in the first match. And, I mean, he just beat the heck out of the boy he had, and he drop-kicked him off the top rope. He kicked him right out of the ring. He went through the ropes and out into the concrete. And Jimmy went over and grabbed him, threw him back in the ring, covered him. And the instant replay of that dropkick was just tremendous. The power of the instant replay and the technological advancement that we were using that nobody in the country and other wrestling shows were doing at this point, it's like they hadn't even discovered it. It just made our program unique. It was it was wonderful. I loved the fact that we could do it. Ron Wright closed out the show with a big win. And now the crowd is on fire. They've been on fire since the tag match earlier in the deal when they were on fire for Jimmy's win. When they see Ron Wright come out for the last match, they're really into it. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Ron Wright did pretty much the same thing that Jimmy had done. I mean, he took care of his guy pretty quick. And as he was getting his hand raised, studio was already going crazy. Here comes Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John. And they grab Ron Wright and they start in on Ron Wright. and. Uh, Studio is crazy at this point. So I'm the special manager. So I hit the ring. And once I hit the ring, man, the roof came off the place. Garvin and Big John, they got out quick, hit the floor running. And uh, so Ron and I took the last interview. And he thanked me, obviously, for saving him from from probably a bad injury. Because people already seen what had happened to his brother, Don Wright, uh, the Friday before. He told everybody I was his special manager for the Garvin match, obviously. And he said how glad he was to have me in his corner, especially since it was only his second lights out match of his career. 
you know, and I told him I'd had five in Florida before I came to Southeastern. And I told him if things got really crazy in this match, which the lights out matches that they did get crazy. And if they get out of hand and the action gets out of the ring, I said, I want you to promise me, Ron, that you're going to give me Garvin because of what he did to me with Terry Funk. So then I finished by setting old Ron right up for the close. I said, you know, Ron, I used to hate to hear you say it when we were wrestling against each other, but I'd love to hear it now. <laughs> what, are, what are they going to get next Friday night, Ron? Here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> there he goes. And boy, he, he set it up, man. I'd set him up so good. And he drew it out, boy. He said, they're going to get a good old Tennessee dog whooping. <laughs> oh boy you couldn't close the show better than that no, i mean everybody in that building was standing up so it was a great tv man that's awesome heck of a tv show ryan hey this is a good place for a break let's take a break right now we'll do that and listen if you've got somebody on your christmas list and it's not too soon you got a wrestling fan on your christmas list we're going to tell you what to do that's coming up next this studcast will continue in moments right here Want to give the perfect gift this year? Something different and special for Christmas? Now's the time to open the door to the Stud Store. Something for everyone. And get it early before it's gone. TNStud.com has everything for the Ron Fuller fan. Unique Tennessee Stud t-shirts in black and blue. Several choices of photographs. Real wrestling history in the Continental Collector's Edition Wrestling 5-Pack. Over 60 matches. 12 hours of action with great stars like the Armstrongs, Fullers, Nightmares, Arn, Adrian, Golden, Mr. Olympia, and many more, all from the Lost Territory. Enjoy Ron's fantastic new novel, Brutus, that has nothing but five-star reviews, and some say is the next Jaws. Find it all there and everything personally autographed to you by the stud himself. Get it now at TNStud.com, and the stud store will open the door. Christmas will be here soon. Treat yourself or a loved one to something they can only find at TNStud.com. Hey, it's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Welcome back in. We're about to roll in. TNStud.com. TNStud.com is where you start your Christmas shopping for the ultimate wrestling fan on your list. Autograph photos of the Stud, T-shirts in black and blue, autographed copies of Ron's new novel called Brutus, plus an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the Continental and Southeastern Wrestling Days. If it's for Christmas, you're going to find it at tnstud.com. It's the studs home on the internet. All right, so where are we riding to now, Ron? Well, we're going to get the results of that card of November 5th, 76. The first match was the new Gladiator, and he gets a win over Tommy Rich. But, uh, you know, and this Gladiator had on the same outfit, but he didn't exactly look like the same guy, and he sure didn't wrestle like Dick Steinborn. Steinborn had just been having these great matches with the young talent, the baby faces, and clean matches. This guy goes in and is anything but a clean match with Tommy Rich. In fact, he actually, for a first match, he opens up Tommy Rich in the very first match of the night, and he beats him using a whatever out of his tights. And the fans were pretty well dumbfounded about who, what the hell happened to our gladiator? You know, I mean, well, this guy's a, it, how they, so obviously I got him right off. You know, now they're like, who, what in the world is going on? 
So the second match, Rip Smith and the Great Mephisto wrestled a 20-minute time limit draw. Third match, Jimmy Golden and Louis Toilette ended up both bleeding, and the match was a double disqualification. They're going to come back in the Texas death match. The fourth match, Yvonne Steiger successfully defended her Southeastern tag titles against Tanaka and Stallings. They actually beat Stallings. The main event was obviously the NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match with no time limit, no disqualification. The building lights were extinguished, as always, before a lights-out match. Then they introduced the contestants, and, and boy, it got started. Garvin brought his southeastern belt to the ring, even though it wasn't a championship match. And uh, fans probably couldn't figure out, as I, what was going on. It was used eventually as a weapon against Ron Wright by Big Bad John. And uh, Ronnie Garvin drew the referee to, uh, along with me and him. Uh, and uh, when he did, Big Bad John, uh, he uh, popped Ron Wright with that metal belt, and Ron started bleeding. Ronnie Garvin was opened up by Ron later in the same match, and uh, things were really wild in that match. Big Bad John knocked Ron Wright out with the belt at the very end of it, and Garvin covered Wright for the pin. And, but at that point, once I saw uh, Big Bad John hit right with the belt to knock him out, I went around and grabbed me and Big John got into it on the floor. I ended up getting the belt away from him. And I went in the ring after him and Garvin. When they were raising Garvin's hand, they both jumped out of the ring. And I ended up, me and Ron Wright, taking Garvin's southeastern belt back to the dressing room with us. The following Friday night, Ron Wright's going to come back and wrestle Ronnie Garvin for the last time. We're going to put that belt on top of a 20-foot pole, and the guy that gets the belt is going to become the next Southeastern champion. Wow, that's awesome. All right, what kind of attendance? Uh, you probably had a pretty good night that night. Yeah, the crowd was uh, about, it was just under 4,000. Uh, it was just about a full crowd, full house at Jacobs Building which was we had been doing since that Coliseum show. I mean, we were filling that Jacobs building up. It wasn't big enough. We were turning people away. I hated that, but that's what it was all about. Man, what a stud cast so far. I think it's time for us to get that cold drink. Let's take a seat under the learning tree again. What was our question again, Ron? And who was the person asking? A learning tree question for this stud cast came from a gentleman named Mike Schaefer. And he asked, how did it feel to win the NWA title in the Terry Funk match and have the belt taken away again after it was over? Uh, And he has three questions here. Uh, Why do you feel you were not given a true run with the title? And did you ever regret selling Continental Wrestling? Let's start with the first question uh, and about uh, how did I feel about winning the NWA title in the Terry Funk match and having the belt taken away again after it was over? Well, uh, unless you were scheduled and voted upon by the NWA to win that belt, you weren't going to win it, much less be able to keep it, that's for sure. So I felt honored just to be able to work a finish in my territory in which I could create such heat and controversy as that finish did, built around a world championship match. I got my hand raised as the NWA world champion in that match. They gave me the belt. And I had a great celebration with my fans, uh, the <laughs> belt over my head in the air. I mean, before all hell broke loose in that yeah. match, you know, and not many wrestlers could say they, they got their hand raised in the NWA belt given to them in a world title match. So that was about as close as you could come to winning the world championship without winning it. 
And, you know, I think about it, damn, I had the pleasure and the honor of it happening to me twice in my career. It happened on April 27, 75 in Knoxville in the Coliseum uh, when I beat Jack Briscoe for the NWA world title. Briscoe was counted out. My hand was raised. And again, I was given the 10 pounds of gold, although I didn't leave the ring with it. I actually did leave the ring with it in that match. And they came and got it from me. <laughs> so to me, it showed the respect I had from Sam Mutzik and, and the other main people within the NWA to allow me to come that close to being the champion. Yeah. You know, those kinds of finishes in the NWA world title matches were few and far between. I, I really was pleased that I had the opportunity to get that close. But what I didn't like and, and, and how it felt was the knee in my throat from Ronnie Carvin off the top rope at the end of that match. And besides yep. it hurting, being extremely painful and spending three days in the hospital, it was going to dramatically affect the next 10 weeks of my planning as a booker for working with Ronnie Garvin in 10 straight weeks. Uh, I lost a lot of big crowds and, uh, and I lost the momentum that I had after the funk match. So I wasn't so happy about that part of it. I believe his second question was, why do you feel you're not given a true run with the title? Right. You know, I think I was being seriously considered, looked at as a potential NWA champion in 1973 and 74. I was working St. Louis just about every other Friday night in 1973 and late 74. Now, St. Louis was the home of the National Wrestling Alliance and the president, uh, Sam Muchnick. Sam had more power than anyone in the NWA during those years. And when it came to naming a new champion, he had a big say in it. I was a great candidate for the big strap, uh, you know, because I was tall. I was big. I had some pretty good ability in the ring. Uh, my family's history uh, as the oldest and the largest in the sport was incomparable. Nobody could surpass that. Uh, all serious discussion for me, though, probably ended in the fall of 1974 when I decided I wanted to become an owner of a territory rather than pursue the world championship belt. So Sam Munchick, being a St. Louis promoter, he knew how difficult it would have been to be successful as a promoter. And even if I worked at it full time, how hard it was going to be to be successful as a promoter. To be a world champion, you had to be on the road every day. And in, in no way could you handle your promotion responsibilities and be world's champion at the same time. Uh, earlier in this studcast in the day's training, I talked about barely making a success of Southeastern when I was there every day. Imagine if I'd had that belt, I could, there would have been no chance of me having any success to build a wrestling territory. To do a wild champion, it would have just been literally impossible. So uh, that's not going to happen, uh, basically. And, uh, and his final question was, did I ever regret selling Continental Wrestling? Well, I look back at the fall of 1987. It, it was a very bad time to be a wrestler, uh, much less the owner of a territory. Wrestling was changing dramatically at this point. Vince McMahon Jr., he was making his move to take over wrestling in America. I'd been running my own wrestling companies at that point. You know, with little help for 14 years, uh, you know, what a grind it was. And, and I was beginning to burn out from that daily pressure of running a wrestling company by myself. Didn't have any employees, didn't have much help. Vince was beginning to run shows in my territory at this point in Continental. 
It was using the stars against me that I had built years before he ever got his hands on. Hulk Hogan, mm. the honky tonk man, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Paul Orndorff, David Schultz, and the list goes on and on. All were developed by me. And he would put those guys on those cards against me in the same night in cities that I'd been running in for years. I could see that the business my family had been in since 1924 was about to end. It was about over for wrestling, I see. And I fared much better than most promoters because I sold my continent. At least I made something from it at the end of my efforts. And that's a lot better than many promoters did. They kept fighting too long, and they missed the opportunity to sell what they had worked hard to build. So to answer your last question, Mr. Schaefer, I did not regret my decision to sell Continental. Two years later, I got involved in ownership in another sport entirely, hockey. You know, I figured the timing was right for hockey, and it was beginning to become popular all over America, and especially I could see it was going to grow in the southern United States. I bought my first hockey franchise in Nashville, Tennessee, and a year later, I bought another one in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1990. I never looked back on my father and my grandfather's sport. I actually made more in hockey in five years than I'd made in wrestling in 14. That is absolutely incredible. Did you ever pick up the phone because Vince McMahon, as he would say, had the cojones to call you and say, hey, Ron, let's talk. No, I've never spoken to Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, I rather have a lot of respect for his father. He dealt with the NWA. He was actually, he wasn't a part of the NWA, but he came to NWA meetings in Las Vegas every year. Mm -hmm. He never tried to take anything from anybody, but uh, his son saw things totally different. And I could tell that Vince Jr. was not Vince Sr. And I just uh, felt like that I'd had some good years. I Mm -hmm. had made some money. I had been successful. And I felt like maybe I can do it in something else. And I found out I was right about that. But your relationship with with Vince Sr. was how you got Andre the Giant in your market so many times. Oh, yeah. And like I said, you know, he gave me Andre the first time he ever gave me Andre. He said, He said, Ron, I'm going to give him to you for Knoxville for one night. Uh, He says, I'm going to check and see how he feels about it. And uh, I want to see how you pay him. And he he laid down the framework of what I expect to happen there. And uh, and it happened. And then, like I said, Andre fell in love with Knoxville. He fell in love with Southeastern. He fell in love with my talent. He fell in love with my territory. Then Vince felt secure enough that eventually I started, instead of getting Andre for one night, I get Andre for seven nights. That's cool. So you did, you did a terrific job hosting Andre the Giant, who really began to love your territory and wanted to come back more often. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's it cool. was, it was wow. probably his favorite territory to work in all the world. And, uh, and he had no bones about telling other people about it. Andre was my, an ambassador for my Southeastern Territory. He, he really, really loved it. And I loved him. That's awesome. <laughs> You've done it again. Another incredible studcast. All right. On Facebook, simply like and follow Ron on the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page and automatically become friends with a legend. Also on Facebook, author Ron Fuller Welch for information on Ron's blockbuster novel, Brutus. 
On Twitter, it's Ron Fuller Welch there. Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch there too. Super Studcast number 35 coming soon will be the first ever interactive Super Studcast. Send your questions to Ron on the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. Send those in now. If your question is selected, you'll be asking your question and talking with Ron live on the next Super Studcast number 35 on Tuesday, November 10th of 2020. Do not miss this one. That is going to be awesome. All right, so where are we headed next week, Ron? Well, uh, we're going to be uh, obviously uh, into that November month of 1976. Uh, I'm going to be coming back. I started it uh, already as a manager with Ron Wright. I'm going to slowly work my way back into the ring because I'm still not well from that uh, drop in the throat. The Cadillac Tournament is going to begin in November. Bob Armstrong is getting ready to return to Southeastern. Andre the Giant's coming soon. We're going to get one of the best heels in the history of the sport, in my opinion. The Mongolian Stomper is going to arrive soon in Southeastern. I can't wait till fans hear who the Mongolian Stomper's manager is going to be. It's another today's training we're going to have next week, another learning tree. Uh, a lot's happening in Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, I hope fans are going to join us again next week. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today. And I want to say hello to all those new listeners that we continue to gain out there week after week. We really appreciate you giving us a listen. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there, everybody, and others around you. And may God bless us all. God bless you too, Ron. Another amazing job. This is David Summers thanking you for being with us today and reminding you Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.